0: by which he has given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world through lust. Before we open God's word together this morning, let's bow our heads and ask his guidance on our time. Father, we are so thankful we have your word. When we look at the history of your word, we realize that throughout much of the church age, the vast majority of believers did not have access to a copy of your word, much less a copy of your word that was in their language and that was easily accessible. And for this, we are so grateful. And yet, we are Concerned because with the easy access to your word, there are so many who could care less. And yet, it is your word that is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It is the ultimate source of guidance, direction, wisdom, truth, and the basis on which all of our thinking should be built. And yet, so frequently, Believers, as well as unbelievers, are too casual, so casual in the fact that we have something so precious. Now, Father, as we open your word today, may we put our attention upon it, focus upon it, hold it near to our hearts, because without it, we would be in vast darkness. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. That's our focal point today where we are going to focus upon Christ's immeasurable love for us and some verses that are uh, often misunderstood and have frequently been misinterpreted in some of the most unusual ways you can imagine. Uh, down through the history of Christianity. So hopefully we will have a little greater understanding of what is going on here. Let's uh, look at the context in terms of why Paul is praying in this passage. He is praying to the Father, where we learn that all prayer is to be directed to the Father, that when prayers are identified as being directed to one member of the Trinity, it is always to the Father. We do not find prayers addressed to Jesus or to the Holy Spirit because you do not pray to the intercessor. You pray to the Father. And he prays this prayer uh, for a stated purpose in verse, four, uh, verse 16, and that is that God the Father would use the Holy Spirit to strengthen them, and the application is that God would strengthen us. We should be praying this same thing, that God the Father would, through the Holy Spirit, strengthen us in the inner man. But what you often find when you look at this passage is people think there are three or four equal things that are being prayed for. There is a, there, there's a logical structure here, and so he's praying that we would be strengthened in the inner man with the result that Christ would make his home in our life. But that's not the end game. He, why is he praying that Christ would make his home in our life? It is so that we can begin to comprehend the immensity of God's love for us. That's where we are today in verses 18 and 19. And then verses 20, 21, or excuse me, 19, 18 and 19 go on to say that so the ultimate result would be that we might be spiritually mature, reflecting the love of Christ for us in our relations with others. So it reveals a staircase to spiritual maturity. In previous lessons, we've looked at what the whole, what the Bible teaches about the Holy Spirit's ministry to the believer, and this is very interesting how it's structured here in Ephesians chapter three verse sixteen that we are to be strengthened with might through His Spirit uh, in the inner man, and that this is accomplished by means of the Spirit through the Spirit. He is the agent. And so we are to walk by the Spirit. That's, we're going to connect back to that at the end of the message, that you have these different commands. John talks about walking in the light, walking in the truth. He relates Jesus' language in John chapter 13, uh, 15, that we are to abide in Christ. And this is the basis for fruit being produced in our life. And so we that helps us to understand that this the, these terms are roughly synonymous, just emphasizing different facets of our of our spiritual life and our our spiritual growth. So we have seen this structure as we have in this slide that the first result is Christ making his home in us, and we looked at that last time, and this isn 't talking about the indwelling of Christ, which is true for Uh, Every single believer, every one of us is indwelt by Christ from the instant that we are saved. But this uses a language that intensifies that to the idea of Christ making his home with us. That's the picture of fellowship. It's the picture of that partnership, that walking together that we have emphasized in these other passages And so this is the idea, and that the result of that, the result of our walk with the Lord, the result of our spiritual growth is that in turn, in turn, that uh, has another purpose, and that is that we may begin to comprehend. We'll never fully comprehend it. it. It's not incomprehensible in the sense that that we can't understand Christ's love for us because we certainly have a lot of uh, images and a lot of verses and things that teach us about Christ's love for us but it is infinite so we can never fully comprehend it we can never exhaustively comprehend it but we can understand it to the degree that God has has revealed it to us and so that's the sense of this word A kat oikeo, which intensifies the root verb oikeo, which means to dwell or to live in, to settle down uh, in something. And so as we come to this uh, sort of uh, intermediary purpose that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, he, he expresses this next purpose through that next phrase that we see there, that you. Now, at this point, we have to make sure we understand the best way to translate this because as is so often the case, and sometimes I think it's good and sometimes I think it's bad, but translators uh, vaguely translate participles because a participle doesn't have an objective marker on it that says this is causative or this is a participle of means or this is a participle of manner or this is conditional. You have to get that from the context, and so sometimes that involves a certain level of. Uh, uh, I don't. I'm going to use a word, but I'm not using it negatively. It's subjective on the part of the uh, interpreter. He looks at it, and some of these overlap, or, and sometimes it can have either nuance can make sense in manner or means can can be very close to one another. And it could be causative. It could also be understood as means, but they get the main idea across. But there's about nine different ways that you can interpret a participle. And when I teach students how to do this, I tell them it's a process of elimination. You just uh, reword the sentence and probably uh, four-fifths of them will not make sense. You're going to look at them and go, well, that doesn't make sense. It can't be causative. No, that doesn't make sense. That can't be conditional. And then you'll say it, well, uh, this is uh, by means of. And, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, or through. Use the the English word through, and that makes sense. So that's how you uh, work your way through uh, the translation on these things. But as um, uh, several have pointed out, Uh, The role of the translator is to translate, not to interpret. And this is a uh, major um, problem that you have in a lot of translations today is you have the translators interpreting something. The NIV is egregious in this behavior, which is one reason I don't care for it too much because I don't agree with the translator's interpretation of the passage. For example, in the NIV in 1 Corinthians 3, it translates it, uh, the phrase talking about these uh, Corinthians as being worldly. Yes, they were worldly, but that's not what the Greek says. The Greek says they were fleshly, which is the word sarx. World is the word related to cosmos, and worldly has a different sense than sarks. Yes, they're related, but fleshly is usually translated carnal, and we get a completely different sense of the passage. And so the translator translates it according to his uh, theology, which isn't probably very correct, and uh, yet it passed muster. And there's lots of different examples of this. And so uh, the argument is that we should uh, translate this, it should be translated in a way to leave the interpretation up to the pastor in the pulpit. And that um, uh, that is uh, a view of uh, Dr. Bob Thomas, who uh, went to be with the Lord a couple of years ago, but he had some incredible material on literal grammatical historical interpretation, probably one of the foremost writers and speakers on that particular topic. So we come to this word being. Well, what sense does that have? And it's best, I think, to translate this as a two causal participles. And they're in the perfect tense. Now, perfect tense always means something that's happened completely in the past. It's completed action in the past with results that continue. And so either you're emphasizing the uh, significance of the current results of that completed past action, or you're emphasizing the completedness of the past action. And in this sense, it's expressing a cause that uh, should be translated that you, because you have already been rooted and grounded in love. that That's the basis for this uh, statement of this this purpose clause that you why that why is this purpose necessary there's the in indwelling or the make, Christ making his home in us for the uh, next stage for the purpose that you and then he's reminding them because you have already been rooted and grounded in love now whose love is it it's best to understand this, is God's love. At the cross, when we trusted Christ as Savior, we responded to God's love. Passages like John three sixteen and Romans 5, 8 emphasize the fact that it is God's love that is behind his plan of salvation. He demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So that is a picture for us an example of the extent of God's love, how he demonstrated it, and that's what John 3.16 is actually saying when it's correctly translated, for God loved the world in this manner or in this way as if it's giving an example that, that he sent his only unique son that whosoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. So when we receive the gospel, when we trust in Christ as our Savior, and when we just form it in our minds, in uh, the idea that we hear the gospel, you say, yeah, I believe that. Uh, We don't have to pray a prayer. God's omniscient. He knows what we're trusting. The instant, the nanosecond when we say and form that thought in our minds, yeah, I believe that. That's true. At that instant, we're saved. We don't have to do anything overtly uh, in order to be saved. Uh, now, some of you have been in or- with organizations where when you got saved, they have people pray the sinner's prayer or some other thing, but that has nothing to do with your salvation. Uh, a lot of times they just want to make sure that you have understood the gospel, something of that nature, but we're rooted and grounded in that love that was demonstrated to us at at the cross. So we could translate this section like this, with the result that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith for the purpose that you, because you have already been rooted and grounded in God's love, may be able to, see that takes us to the next level, that the, the result of being strengthened by the Holy Spirit is that Christ may make, be, be at home in our souls through faith. And that has an a next purpose that we, um, uh, because you have already been rooted and grounded in love, that you may be able to comprehend. That's the first Christ uh, makes himself at home with us then because we have been rooted and grounded in God's love, we may be able to comprehend with all the saints the immensity of God's love. I'm just going to summarize that figure. We'll get to that uh, in just just a minute. So we come to verse 18, and really its beginning goes back to the earlier phrase, for the purpose that you... Uh, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height. And then the next level, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So this takes us back to an understanding of what I talked about last week, in terms of the fact that uh, Christ making it home as home with us is related to that concept in uh, John uh, chapter 15. Uh, but before we get there, I want to I want to make sure I'm not skipping a slide and getting out of order here. I am. So I will go here and then back up. Okay, I want to re- review you on this. Jesus says, every branch in me, he's talking about believers. When he uses the phrase in me, a lot of uh, a lot of commentators will say, and a lot of preachers will say, that's related to Paul's term in Christ. And that's sort of a sophomoric error in uh, in exegesis because writers... Different writers use similar phrases, but they use them in different ways. In, when Jesus is speaking and he says, in me, he's not saying the same thing that Paul means when Paul says, in Christ. When Paul talks about in Christ, he is talking about our legal position, the fact that we have been united together in one body in Christ, that we are identified with Christ At the instant of salvation, we're identified with his death, burial, and his resurrection so that we are a new creature in Christ. That is our legal position before God, something that never happened before the day of Pentecost when the church began in Acts chapter 2. What Jesus is talking about at this point is a personal relationship uh, with Him in terms of that walking by the Spirit. So often people use the term, do you have a personal relationship with Christ? The Bible never really talks about it that way, except maybe you could, like I just did, squeeze it into abiding in Him, because that's talking about our walk with Him, where that it's more intimate. But uh, the Bible always uses the phrase, believe in Him. And we have so many ways in which the gospel is wrongly presented, thank heavens, that God is a God of grace and we don't have to pass a theology exam in order to uh, get saved. But the word is believe. It is not invite Jesus into your dirty, filthy, evil, wicked heart. The word is trust in Christ. Believe in him. And then he tells his disciples who are already believers, every branch in me... That does not bear fruit, he takes away. And I looked at that last time and said this word that's translated lift up is a Greek word that can mean either lift up or remove. When it is translated as remove, people get the idea of some kind of either divine discipline or it is a loss of salvation. But it has the idea of lifting up. And a, a classmate of mine at Dallas Seminary named Gary Derrickson, who's taught at um, college level and graduate level for many years since he graduated from seminary and, and published several works on this, got his master's in viticulture at, the, at Texas A&M, and he went back and studied the, how they actually took care of the uh, grapevines in a vineyard. And he pointed out that what they do is that at the end of the first year, if a new branch has not produced fruit, then what they do is they tie the branch up so it gets more sunlight, gets more air, and so that the next season, it can produce fruit. So that's the idea here. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he lifts it up. Why? So that it will bear fruit the next year. And he says then, every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. So after the end of the season where this branch has produced fruit, then it will be pruned so that all of the energy of the plant, more of the energy of the plant will go into the fruit and not into just the growth of leaves and, uh, and branches. If you... Uh, if you grow tomatoes, you do the same kind of thing. You want most of the energy to go into fruit production and not leaf production. I tend to get a lot of leaf production. So that's the idea in 15.2. Every branch that bears fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So you have different levels of fruit that's produced. It can produce fruit, it can produce more fruit, and later we'll see that it produces much more fruit. But what I want to point out in the the John 15 passage is that the command is to abide in me. What's the result of abiding in Christ? That's on the right side of the chart. You either produce fruit, more fruit, or much fruit. What is the sole condition mentioned in John 15 for producing fruit? It is abiding in Christ. But if you look at John chapter 15... Verses 16 to 26, the command, this is on the bottom left of the chart, is to walk by means of the Spirit. That's the sole and necessary condition. The result is the fruit of the Spirit. So in John 15, Jesus says, Abide in me, that's the condition for producing fruit. In Galatians 5, Paul says, Walk by the Spirit, that's the sole condition for producing fruit. What that tells you is walking by the Spirit and abiding in Christ are uh, are very similar and very close to one another because uh, when you just have one condition and they're just expressed different ways, then those are synonymous. And then when you look at passages like Ephesians chapter 5, you also have walk by means of truth, and uh, there's a textual problem there, uh, some manuscripts say walk by the Spirit; others say walk in the light or walk by the truth. And the result is it bears the fruit of some passages. Some manuscripts say Spirit; some say righteousness. The fruit of the fruit that's produced is uh, is based on that soul condition of walking by means of the truth. So this language is all very, very similar. So we go back to. Our passage in Ephesians 3.18, it says, with the result that you, because you have already been rooted, which is an agricultural term, and grounded, which is an architectural term. So the, both of those metaphors indicate we have, it's an establishment that t- has taken place at the instant of salvation. May be able to comprehend. Now that word, may be able is an interesting word. It is. Uh, it only occurs in this one spot in the New Testament. It's ex iscuo. Now, isch, that I-S-C-H is related to, uh, there's a noun for strength that, is, that that's related to, and that'll be important. I'm going to point something out in just a minute. Um, that you may be able... Means that you may be strong enough, that you may be empowered, that not just you may be able, but it's a much stronger word than that, that you may be strengthened or strong or empowered. And then it says, it completes the thought with this infinitive, to receive or to comprehend rather, and this is the Greek word kata lambano. The root word lumbano means to receive, and this has different senses to it. And in this sense, when it's uh, in this kind of a form, it has the idea of grasping something with your mind, comprehending it, or understanding its meaning. What this tells us is that we as believers have the capacity to understand and comprehend everything that's written in God's word. Now, some things are more difficult to comprehend than other things. That's true in every, uh, every every area of intellectual activity. You first have to learn your basics, then you learn your uh, more significant basics, and then you go on to intermediate level and then to an advanced level. But what this emphasizes is the idea that the, the spiritual truth is grasped or comprehended with the mind. It's not grasped by emotion. It is grasped intellectually. There has to be thinking involved. Now, the word that is often used in the Old Testament that relates to this is the idea of meditation. And meditation is a practice that we should all have. It's not the meditation of New Age, the New Age movement or Eastern Hinduism or Buddhism or something like that, where the practice is to basically empty your mind. It is to fill your mind with the Word of God. It's just the opposite of paganism. We're to fill our thinking with the Word of God. And so you might ask, well, how do I do that? How do I meditate on God's Word? Well, the first step in meditating on God's Word is to just read the Word, read the Bible. This is why we encourage people to have some sort of plan to follow and read your Bible through once a year. And it's amazing how many times people uh, will confess that, well, I've never read my Bible all the way through. I've heard that from several pastors. And it seems like every year I try to read it through in you know in a year and i get distracted and this comes up and that comes up and i just never quite make it through doesn't mean that at some point or other they haven't read it all the way through but they've just never managed to maybe get it all read in a year and uh, i can understand that as a pastor i think i'm about 4 weeks behind right now on my plan because i'm reading so many other things and spending so much other time in other passages of the word So that that typically happens, and then things will slow down, and I'll get caught up at some point. But that's what it begins with, is just reading the Bible. That means you need to set aside a time every day that's going to be a protected time when you are going to read your Bible, that you are going to sit down and maybe have a spiral notebook or... Uh, a pad, or maybe if you're doing it with your computer, you're typing out your notes, whatever works the best for you, that's what you do. And you write down the things that you see, the things that you, questions that you have, well, what does this mean and what does that mean? And uh, the, the various observations, that's the first step in Bible study. And that's why I have a series called Bible Study Methods that's up on the internet And if you want to develop basic skills in that, that's what that's designed for, not just for somebody who's going to be a Sunday school teacher or somebody who's going to be a pastor or something like that. It's designed to enhance our Bible reading all the time. The next step after reading the text is to memorize Scripture. And when you memorize scripture, what you do is you go over it and over it and over it again in your mind. You just keep repeating it until you get the wording down right and you understand it. And what happens when you do that, because your mind's engaged, all of a sudden you go, wait a minute, How, what does that word mean? How does that relate to this other word? And you start to see things that you didn't see the first 20 times you recited the verse to yourself. And that's just the uh, the process of learning and the process of growth. And I was in a conversation this last week. Somebody said, as many times as I've read through Joshua or read through Judges or read through some other book, they'll say, I still see things in verse I don't remember ever reading that before. And that's the way it's going to be all through our life. That's why we need to read it over and over and over again and if you get to the point where you kind of anticipate what it's going to say and your mind will disengage, then shift to a different translation and that way it's it's worded freshly and it's not going to lead you astray, you don't worry about that, uh, but it's helpful I try to read through different English translations uh, all the time and uh, just to see something about them, I get asked questions all the time from people Well, what do you think about this translation or that translation and and uh, each one has weaknesses and each one has strengths. And so they're usually just about equal in all of those. But most pastors I know will have a certain reaction to one translation or another. I was talking to somebody the other day about the ESV, a well-educated pastor, friend of mine. And he said, well, I don't like it because they have a non-messianic interpretation of Daniel week, 70 weeks in Daniel 9. And I thought, well, I don't think I've read them on Daniel 9, so I'll have to pay attention to that, and I think he's right. So everybody has their little sections or passages they've done a little in-depth work on, and they recognize that this is more of a theological, a wrong theological interpretation than a, than a right one. So you read through it, and then sometimes you're going to ask those questions. And we live in an age of with... with uh, Basic stuff. Logos has some basic tools that you can get for almost nothing. Put it on your iPad or your um, or your iPhone or whatever you have, and then you have uh, Accordance, which I really like. I like some of the way it structures some things and. Um, that, but you have all these different tools that you can look at, and they—you don't have to know the original languages or even read read the the Hebrew or Greek alphabet because everything's transliterated and and explained. But you just probe a little more deeply. So after you have read the text and you're memorizing the text, or while you're doing it, uh, you think, well, where else would I find this kind of information? And so there are. You have columns, if you have a study Bible, there's a column in the middle that has cross-references, and that's just a very rudimentary place to go. But if you have one of these other uh, computer tools, there's a tool called the New Treasury of Scripture Knowledge. And so this just gives you an example. This is from their entry on Ephesians 3.18, and it has words. Now, the key words like able, saints, what, depth, height, those are in bold in the way it appears in the uh, text, and I didn't copy it in a way that would preserve that. And then it will list parallel passages that use that language or use that word, and so you can start doing some cross-reference work. And then you also have and one tool. We used to give this to pastors when they got ordained. It's uh, Spiros zodiades uh uh, original language is Hebrew and Greek, new T- dictionary of New Testament words and Old Testament words. And so it's tied to the Strong's Concordance. Now, some of you have looked at the old Strong's Concordance when you had, uh, uh King James Bible, but it's been updated for New American Standard and updated for, uh, NIV and what they, what they, uh, Strong's Concordance did was assigned a number to every Greek word. So it had a rudimentary Greek dictionary and Hebrew dictionary. And then numbered every word from the first word in A all the way to the last word. It just assigned a number. And then it puts that number in the text next to the word so that you can see what that word is. And for example this word would be uh, Twenty-six, thirty-eight in the Strong's Concordance, and that is kata lambano. So it gives you the Greek, it gives you the English transliteration, and then now these aren't these aren't the meanings of the word. This reflects just the way in which it's translated. Okay, so don't confuse this with the. With what you would get in a more sophisticated Greek lexicon. So, what this means is it's translated attained one time, it's translated caught two times, it's translated comprehend two times, found one time. That is in the New American Standard. Okay? So, you look at the NIV, it's going to have a different set of words, uh, different set of words there. And then, uh, you can look it up in some other, uh, in, in fact, in um, in the word study dictionary that comes with that study Bible, it lists three meanings. I didn't ha- have room to put them all up here, but it says that figuratively, it means to seize something with the mind. See, the root meaning is to apprehend or obtain something, but it is used figuratively for seizing something with the mind to comprehend. And that's in John 1, 5, where the darkness did not receive the light. And it's this word means the darkness didn't comprehend the light, the light being Jesus. Jesus was incomprehensible to the darkness. And then further down, I said in the middle voice of the verb, it means to comprehend for oneself, perceive or find. So that's the sense that we have here. So when you're uh, looking at a text and you're studying it you have these tools that can enhance your reading and your own study of god's word and you can get a little more insight so keep a keep a notebook handy write down your questions write down your notes write down your observations and that helps you just to understand promises that you're memorizing a little better and understanding uh, different verses so that's That's what, to comprehend it, you have to think. You have to learn how to study. You need to learn how to read. Uh, When I went to Dallas Seminary, they had a requirement to read a book called How to Read, and it was written by one of the editors of the uh, great books of the the Western world, which was, I think that was a Britannica publication, Anyway, I had purchased a set of great books some years before and had that and had already read it a couple of times, and I've recommended this from the pulpit many times, that anybody, if you've got a high school kid or junior high school kid, you need to take them through that as a summer project so they can learn how to read. And it, it it's it's fundamental to being able to grasp things, and also speed reading classes are good. So we are... Uh, the verse reads, "...with the result that you, because you've already been rooted and grounded in God's love, may be able to comprehend." Uh, comprehend what? Uh, we'll get to that. "...with all the saints." And this word that's translated with means in accompaniment with others. And I don't think, as some people have observed, this shows that the fact that you need to be involved with other members of the body of Christ... It, it is Paul expressing his desire, it's not just for the Ephesian believers, but for all the saints. Now, let me remind you, what's the context of Ephesians 2:11 to 21? That is what he's referring to when he starts off saying, for this reason. What's that talking about? This new entity that has been created in the church age where Jew and Gentile are now united together as one new man, one new body, one new household, one new temple. So when he says here, with all the saints, contextually he is saying with all the saints, that is Jew and Gentile now united together in one new body, that we all need to do this. This is a prayer for every single believer, Jew and Gentile. Nobody is in a position of uh, advantage or superiority in the body of Christ. So we are to comprehend, we're to meditate on what the Word of God says about Christ's love for us. And so this is what is described in this next phrase, what is the width and length and depth and height. Some of you... Have, uh, maybe using New American Standard or ESV or NIV or some other translation. And there's a word switch. It doesn't mean anything. There's, the manuscripts are about split. Some say width, length, height, depth. Some say width, length, depth, height. It doesn't matter. Uh, it is a figure of speech describing the dimensions of, of God's, of Christ's love for us, which is infinite. So it is a a hyperbolic statement. That means it's an exaggeration uh, to emphasize the immensity of the love of Christ. Now, it is not incomprehensible, as I said earlier, because we can comprehend certain things about Christ's love for us. We'll just never be able to comprehend In its fullness, we're never going to be able to exhaustively comprehend the love of Christ because even in eternity, we will still have finite minds and finite knowledge. We can understand it in a way that's much greater than we can now, but we will never fully be able to understand it, which means that we're constantly going to be learning so for folks who don't like to learn and don't like to study and don't like to reflect, I hate to tell you, but in heaven, uh, uh, uh you know, how, how is said when, when uh, thousands and thousands of years have gone by in the hymn Amazing Grace, uh, it'll be just like the beginning. Well, in, in 10,000 times 10,000 centuries, we're still going to be learning and we will never exhaust the omniscience of God in terms of our learning. Isn't that incredible? So we are to comprehend, we need to meditate on God's word so that along with all of the saints, we can come to a better understanding of the immensity of Christ's love. Now, what's interesting is that if you go through commentaries throughout church history, there's a lot of different interpretations. And I bet most of you here could probably write down at least two or three that you've heard from uh, different pastors. But uh, for example, in the period after the Reformation, Theodore Beza, who was uh, Calvin's successor, and Hugo Grotius, who was on the opposite end of the spectrum, he was an Arminian, uh, they both agreed that this was pointing to the quarter's of the heavens the four quarters of the heavens uh, that were related to, and related it back to where the priest would offer the heave offering to the four points of the compass so that's a very creative interpretation others have held the view that it refers to the four endpoints of the cross i thought that was creative And that's some significant names like Jerome and Augustine and Anselm and Aquinas. Others think that it referred to God's plan for redemption. Others have held it to refer to the future Christian temple, whatever that may be, or they're referring it back to the last verse of the previous chapter. Uh, Gnostics had the idea that it was Christ's crucified body which fills the earth Others are closer on the mark, thinking it refers to the wisdom of God, the power of God. But I think that it best, for the context, it refers to the love of Christ for the believer. And that in verse 19, it goes on to say, To know the love of Christ, that is the love from Christ, which passes knowledge and this is a word it is hooper ballo in the greek Balo means to cast something or to throw something and hooper is beyond so it's throwing something beyond the distance That's like when you see a, a a quarterback throw the football beyond the end zone uh, that would be hooper ballo so this is something that is that has the idea of something that exceeds something else or goes far beyond it. And that is the love of Christ. And so I want to take us back to that passage in the upper room discourse. Now we're going to look at John 13, 34 and 35. I mentioned this last time earlier in John chapter 13, Jesus is having the Seder meal with the disciples He takes off his robe and wraps a towel around him, and he washes their feet. That this was teaching something. It was teaching the importance of cleansing. He said, now, all of you have been cleansed, indicating they were all saved. And then he said, except one, remember? And the one exception was Judas. And it's after that that he tells Judas to go and do what he has to do, and so Judas leaves. From that point on, all of them have been cleansed. And so the emphasis there is on forgiveness of sin. That's what cleansing represents, and that's why Jesus told Peter, if you don't let me do this, what? If you don't let me continue to forgive your sins then you won't have a part with me. And that word for part indicates, it's a technical word for it indicates the inheritance portion of a will. Now, he's not saying Peter's going to lose his salvation. He says Peter won't have uh, rewards in heaven. Remember, there's two classifications of people at the judgment seat of Christ, those that get rewards and those that are saved yet as through fire they have no rewards but they are saved and they do have eternal life and so that's what he's telling Peter he says if you don't let me forgive you you won't have an inheritance a share in the kingdom uh, when I come and then he goes on to tell the disciples now you don't understand this now but you'll understand this in the future but you need to do this for one another what's he saying He's saying you need to forgive one another. You can't truly love people unless you're willing to forgive them. So the passage goes on as Jesus is talking to them. He talks initially about the importance of forgiving one another, and then he gets to the main point down in verse 34 and 35. He says a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. That's related to everything that's gone before. Everything hangs together. So he's just developing this idea of loving one another, and it is predicated on having our sins forgiven and also forgiving others when they have offended us. He says, I give this new commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, the interesting thing is when you look at the Old Testament, the commandment in Leviticus 19.18 is to love your neighbor as yourself. So the comparison is to how you love yourself. Everybody loves themselves. I don't care what all the psychologists in the world say. and say, oh, well, you've got a bad self-image. You don't like yourself. No, the problem is because you love yourself, and you're disappointed about some aspect of the way you look or the way you act or the way you feel, you, you, you hate yourself. But the only reason you hate yourself is because more deeply you love yourself. Everybody is self-absorbed. That's the orientation of the, of the sin nature. So nobody really has a bad self-image. Everybody has a corrupt self-image that thinks too highly of themselves. And uh, so in the Old Testament, though, Jesus is using that as a point of comparison, to love your neighbor like you love yourself. But in the New Testament, he ratchets the, uh, the metric up a good bit. Uh, we're not to love as we love ourselves, but we're to love one another as Christ loved us. So if you're going to come to understand what it means to love one another and that includes love in marriage, love in friendship, that if you're going to understand that, then we need to all spend a lot more time thinking about what it means that Christ loved us. Because that's the measuring rod. That's the point of comparison. We're to love one another as Christ loved us. And he says then in verse 35, "...by this all men will know that you are my disciples." If you have love for one another, this is a metric that cannot be counterfeited. You can't love as Christ loved just from your own corrupt sin nature. It can't happen. It has to be a work of God the Holy Spirit, as we'll see in just a minute. So we go forward, still in the Upper Room Discourse in John 15:9 and 10, Jesus, having already talked to them about the importance of abiding in him, says, as the Father loved me, I have loved you. Then the command, abide in my love. So that means that we can abide in his love or not. And a lot of believers don't abide in Christ's love because they're walking according to their own sin nature, and they're just as self-absorbed and self-indulgent as they can be. And then Jesus said, if you keep my commandments... You will abide in my love. Back in John 14, he said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. The way you know if you love Jesus is not how warm and fuzzy you feel when you sing songs about, Oh, how I love Jesus. How you feel is irrelevant. It's what we do that's important. Again and again, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, you have this com- this comparison that if you love God, you obey God. If you love Jesus, you obey Jesus. If you don't o- obey Jesus, then you don't love Him. It-, it has to do with actions. It has to do with how how we think. So, uh, constantly here and in First John, it's not legalism because keeping the commandments is the result of abiding in Him, or walking by the Spirit, and so. That ability to obey God is produced in us when we are in fellowship, walking in fellowship, walking in harmony with God, uh, applying his word. So he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. He goes on to say, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may abide in you. It's the same word. Translator shifts to a different English word and you lose the point. Uh, that his joy abides in us. It's a f- related to fellowship and spiritual growth. His joy abides in us that your joy may be full. Joy is not just being an upbeat person. I had a seminary professor I invited down to speak at my first church. He was missions professor, and they had a missions conference every year. And he was just a, a, one of these really hyperactive, upbeat personalities. You have the same kind of personality in unbelievers. And uh, he was just uh, uh, always uh, very optimistic and upbeat and always encouraged people and I heard one guy say, boy, you can sure tell he's got the fruit of the Spirit. And I thought, that's just his personality. That's not the fruit of the Spirit. This is the fruit of the Spirit, something that can't be manufactured uh, on our own, this kind of joy, it's a stability no matter what's happening around us, no matter how much chaos there is, no matter who gets elected at the various elections, no matter uh, what else happens, no matter if you get fired, no matter what, you joy can be full because it's focused on the cross and on the Jesus and not on yourself. And so then Jesus reminds him, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. So that indicates what characterizes this love is a willingness to lose your life to save others, metaphorically or literally. And this takes us back over to Galatians 5. I want you to notice the context. I often talk about Galatians 5.16 which is the the core commandment here, walk by means of the Spirit, and you will not. And in the Greek, it's an unusual construction that means it will be impossible for you to fulfill the lust of the flesh if you're walking by the Spirit. You have to stop walking by the Spirit, and then you default to your sin nature, and and then you're in trouble. But he started this section in verse fourteen by saying, "For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this." And this is the quote from Leviticus 19, 18. "You shall love your neighbor as yourself." But that's the mandate to Israel. That's not the mandate for the church. The mandate for the church is to love one another as Christ loved us. And so he uses the example because they've got problems with diff- personal personality conflicts in the congregation. And he says, if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. And then he gives the solution, walk by means of the Spirit. Then in the next couple of verses, he talks about this conflict between the Spirit and the sin nature. Then he gives you the characteristics of the sin nature. And then in verse 22, he gives you the fruit or the results of walking by the Spirit. What are the first two things he mentions? love and joy, says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against which there is no law. And so what we see here is what I was pointing out earlier, the command in John 15 is to abide in Christ. The result is that we will learn to love one another as Christ loved us. You jump over to Galatians chapter 5 verse 16 the command is to walk by the spirit and what the spirit produces in us we don't gen it up on our own what the spirit produces in us is that kind of love and joy and peace and long suffering that is Uh, part of the character of Christ that we can't counterfeit uh, from our own sin nature, although we try. So this is a challenge, and this is what Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 3, that we are to know the love Christ has for us that we may be filled with the fullness of God, and the term fullness of God relates to his character. In Colossians chapter one, it says that in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, the fullness of deity bodily. That tells us that this phrase, the fullness of God, relates to his character. And that's exactly what Romans 8:28 to 30 is talking about, is that, that when we encounter trials, when things aren't going well, we're to... We're to recognize that all things work together for good to those who love Christ, to those who are called according to his purpose. And then it goes on to say, for those whom he called, these he justified, those he justified, these he glorified. And then it said, because he is conforming us to the image of his son. That means he's creating in us the character of Christ. And that's described by the fruit of the spirit. So next time we'll come back, unpack that a little bit more, and then we will go from that into uh, understanding this great uh, benediction that he gives in the last uh, two verses of chapter 3. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be challenged with the importance that we are to focus on every single day, walking by the Spirit, abiding in Christ, walking in the light of your word, which means we have to reflect upon your word. We have to meditate on your word. We have to think about your word. We have to study your word. It's not just listening to somebody else study, but we have to meditate on your word, memorize it, hide your word in our heart. All of these things are so vital and so important if we are going to have any measure of spiritual growth. Father, we're just thankful that your word tells us that we are saved not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but it's all due to your mercy. You sent your son to die on the cross for our sins. We're not saved by uh, obedience in some legalistic way. We are saved only by trusting in Christ. And at that instant, we are clothed with his righteousness and declared righteous because of what you have given us. You have given us your righteousness, and on that basis, we're declared righteous. We are still the same horrible, uh, corrupt sinners we were before, but now we have been declared righteous, and so we have to learn to live as members of your family, live as those who have been regenerated, and live in such a way that, that we reflect the character of Christ. That is our mission, and the result of that is that we will be a testimony, a witness to others and to the angels of your grace. We pray for any who, is li- who may be listening to this uh, message that if they are unsure or uncertain of their uh, eternal destiny, that they would tr- put their trust in Christ alone, that by trusting in him is the only way that we can be saved and be confident and have the assurance that we will spend eternity with you. And, Father, we pray that you would open the eyes of those that are unsaved to the truth of the gospel. And, Father, we just pray this in Christ's name. Amen.